Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amelia Ling, and I'm a second year master's student in the Department of Epidemiology, focusing on infectious diseases. I first met Dr. Paul Farmer when he pleasantly surprised my research group and briefly sat in on our meeting discussing a TB diagnostic rollout program. From my account and many others, his exciting nature and deep intellect is captivating, as I'm sure you will all agree today. Dr. Farmer's passion and dedication for his work are world-renowned, best known perhaps through Partners in Health, his many books and publications, and the bestseller, Mountains Beyond Mountains. Dr. Farmer graduated summa cum laude from Duke University with a Bachelor of Arts in Medical Anthropology. He continued his education at Harvard University, where he earned an MD and a PhD in Medical Anthropology. During his time at HMS, Dr. Farmer, with his colleagues, including Jim Kim and Ophelia Dahl, co-founded Partners in Health, focusing on improving healthcare in Haiti. Today, Partners in Health is an international organization working with partners in Liberia, Russia, Haiti, and many other countries. In addition to directing Partners in Health, Dr. Farmer has served as a UN Special Advisor to the Secretary General and writes extensively on social inequality and health. He is Harvard's Colocatronas University Professor, Chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, and Chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Most recently, he returned from Liberia with a group of physicians and health activists in response to the Ebola epidemic, a current example of a medical issue where leadership has been particularly critical. Before I turn the session over to Professor Michelle Williams, who will be moderating today, please join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Farmer to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you, Amelia, and welcome. Welcome to all of you and here in the studio and to those of you who are listening and viewing this from the um, overflow room and even those viewing from more remote sites. Welcome to the Voices in Leadership uh, seminar discussion series. It's a real privilege for me. Um, I, first of all, I'm Michelle Williams, and I'm chair of the Department of Epidemiology, and it's a real privilege to be the moderator of this session today. Um, I should tell you that the Voices in Leadership uh, seminar series goal is to provide students with an opportunity to really understand um, and appreciate the knowledge around leadership as it is applied to solving some of the most challenging uh, problems in global public health and the health sciences. And I think today we have with us a, 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 a paragon of leadership, um, particularly in solving the most recalcitrant issues in resource-poor settings. Um, Dr. Farmer has done this by combining um, healthcare delivery with scholarship and research and advocacy in addressing some of the biggest problems in some of the most resource-poor settings. Dr. Farmer, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit to trace the arc of your career beginning in Jenkins Creek, uh, Florida, to Duke, to Boston, Harvard Medical School, 
to the development of partners in health. Why should I go back to herpetology as a <laughs> that, that is going back a ways. Um, Jenkins Creek is, a, is in uh, very rural coastal Florida. Um, and I, you know, I, a lot, so getting to the leadership question uh, right away, uh, I was lucky I had a high school guidance counselor, a teacher who took an interest in, maybe more of an interest in, you know, my college career than, than I did. <laughs> um, if someone would have asked me, well, where are you going to go to college? I would have said, well, see, maybe it could be Florida State or University of Florida or University of South Florida. You know, my horizons were rather, uh, not, not that atypical of a public school, high sc uh, public school student at the time. And, uh, and she said, but when I got, went from, you asked the question about the 10-year-old obsession. Um, I kind of went up the evolutionary tree. You know, I started with botany and then herpetology. Oh, well, this is a re reference that will not be familiar to your viewing audience because they didn't hear, they didn't hear the ten-year-old right. question. Anyway, I got up to the evolutionary tree of wanting to be a physician. Again, I, I'm glad that no one said to me, "Well, why do you want to be a physician?" Mm -hmm. How would I have known? I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. But happily, you know, I was, I was steered towards Duke. Um, and I applied, the only, only place I applied to got, you know, wasn't organized to get applications in, and then I ended up there. And, and so my point about how the, tr the arc is a, a, the, the take-home message, as they say in medical school, is there's a lot of serendipity involved. It's very hard to plan out. I mean, how would you plan out that your high school guidance counselor, who you've actually, you know, pulled pranks on and done immature <laughs> things to, is going to say, well, maybe you should think about this place. And um, how would you know that you would meet uh, through scholarship and reading someone who is at the University of Washington but headed to Harvard Medical School? I think, I think you have to be open to serendipity. Um, and that's part of leadership, is, is not being afraid. Um, obviously, these are not dangerous things that I'm describing, going to Duke or going to Harvard. Um, <laughs> There are some dangers, but they're not of the physical sort. <laughs> but a willingness to go outside of your comfort to, zone, right, and to, to go do outside of what's never, familiar to you. That's right. You know, nothing, yeah. Something you've never, you've never heard of. Yeah. And that's how, Haiti, that's how I ended up in Haiti at you know, 23 years of age, going from a laboratory, some laboratory research, directly to Haiti. And that, was, that changed my life. So tell us a little bit, um, in concrete terms, what were some of the lessons you learned early on in Haiti, which is so different? Um, in so many different ways, even from Jenkins Creek. It was very different, and one of the things I, I learned early on, first of all, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, in, in terms of leadership, there's all of these unglamorous parts of leadership, right? Yeah. Persistence, serendipity, being open to something new, uh, believing that, you, that your path may not be laid before you, um, and, and then finally, learning how to play nice with others. I came from a big family of eight people, and let me tell you, and as the herpetologist in the group, now that that is on film, let me just say that one of my brothers became a professional wrestler with World Championship Wrestling. I did not pick fights with those guys, <laughs> uh, my brothers and sisters. You know, learning how to play nice with others, that's a big part of leadership. Mm -hmm. And then finally, as you, as you go on, uh, um, you start saying, hey, wait, leadership, maybe that's about 
creating a stage on which other people can lead. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a form of leadership. Building capacity. Building capacity. And you know, those terms, when I went from Haiti to Harvard Medical School, you know, I'd already met the people with whom I would start, we would start together, Partners mm -hmm. in Health, our Haitian colleagues, like Fritz Lafontaine, still alive, he's a, in his 80s, Tom White, mm -hmm. who I met when I came up here to interview, um, Jim Kim, also met when I came here to interview through a, a professor, Ophelia Dahl, I met in Haiti, and, and my college roommate, Todd, you know, Todd McCork, those are the people who started Partners in Health, and that was 30 years ago. Leadership and development. So, you know, you, you, we didn't, if we had sound, talked about leadership back then, we would sound uh, as pretentious as some of us probably were, um, <laughs> but, you know, you have to be, there's all these unglamorous, mm -hmm. and one of the biggest ones among them is persistence, learning to play nice with, uh, um, uh, you know, th and I, that's why we all still work together. And it's not like it's been easy. Mm -hmm. We've gone through some very difficult times together, but we stuck together, and that's a big part of it, um, is learning how to play nice with others, but also how to keep something going on. So when we talk about sustainability, we can flip that on its head and say, not is this sustainable, but rather how do we sustain it, whatever it is, in public yeah. health, that's a huge part of the, the struggle and for leadership, is to say we will sustain it, not can we sustain this? And that meek and retiring approach to public health challenges, I don't think it works. Yeah. In, in, in sort of my own understanding and looking at the arc of your work in Haiti in particular, um, you started, one of the first projects you started with um, was the Bread Project. Just a nutrition. You did your homework, project. Rochelle. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, and then you know you you developed that to the two bed to the two room clinic, and that further grew. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your approach in how you start a project, prove its concept, and then scale? Because in addition to sustainability, scaling something that works to make it more impactful and sustainable is really a challenge for yeah. those young leaders out there who want to move from the pilot project phase to actual implementation. Well, a couple of things that I would say, again, I think if you, if you were to go into a seminar or a classroom, as I do every week, whether here or in Liberia or Haiti or Rwanda, and you said, well, some of the things you need to think about um, and I could make make a list of virtues or strategies for bringing something to scale. Those would be less interesting, I think, than the stories that don't get told. Mm. And, and in fact, in our first years there, and I say our because remember these those some some of the people we work with died, and, and I'd like to talk more about that if we have a chance. But those who have not still work together, right? And the way we told the story to ourselves when we were young or younger, or we were very young, you know, some of us. Mm -hmm was, isn't it great what we're doing here? Isn't it a success? You know, we didn't use the words those, that baldly, but you know what, it wasn't great and it wasn't a success. It was bad and it was low quality, I was gonna say low rent, um, it was really of poor quality what we were doing. And that was, and, and by the way, the bread project, it was not a mistake to think that people needed food security. We were right on that at least, but it was a mistake, that project, the way we did it. I mean, in the middle of a rural Haiti where there's a major problem with reforestation, I don't think having a yeah. wood-burning oven, oven is a good idea. 
I didn't have to go to Harvard School of Public Health to figure that out. But, you know, so there's all of this difficult uh, process, you know, you're, um, and we, we are kind of coached to tell victory narratives. Mm -hmm. And I bet I did so in my um, interviews at Harvard Medical School. I bet I was, and I'd like to blot that out of my memory. It worked out okay, I guess, because I got in, but mm -hmm. I bet you I told a very, you know, not that I didn't think it was true, but a very positive story of my year in Haiti between college and medical school, but it was not positive. It was full of pain. It was full of mediocrity and worse. And when we started thinking about scale, which actually we learned to think about that here at Harvard School of Public Health where there had been, because we, we took the, uh, the, the community survey right. from the, uh, a project that had been headed by some professors here. The population Sciences Department. Exactly. Um, and in the first, the team that we had of the six people, Haitians, who I worked with all my age, I was going between Harvard, Haiti, Harvard, Haiti, half of them were dead before they were 30. One in childbirth, one from malaria, from cerebral malaria, and one from typhoid perforated ileum. How could that be good? I mean, that was just, it was painful. And again, then the real virtues, I think, that, that are related to leadership come through. And that's persistence, critical, you know, self-critical reflection, um, of course, listening to people, uh, right? I mean, if you want to figure out how to sustain something, get a, you know, good analysis of what the problem is and, uh, and listen to people. And in my experience, Haiti was the best teacher in part because my hosts there were um, only too happy to talk to me about what they thought was wrong with their lives and their world, and they invariably tied it to the rest of the world, right? So it was a global political economy. And I, I, I hope that I learned some of that in college, but the Haitians would have it no other way. The idea that there was some nation called Haiti that had boundaries so that a sustainable program would have to fit into whatever their GDP right. was, they rejected that. And because they said, wait, you know, our people were kidnapped from West Africa, you know, we, we lost, you know, things. And that's the kind of historical analysis I get all the time from Haitians. And it was a great lesson. I learned a lot from them. Now, that's a very long answer to your question. But, you know, the, the first order virtues are usually mm -hmm. really not the real lessons. It's the reflection that leads you to think about the tougher lessons. So I wanted to ask a little bit about further along the lines of reflection. As, as you grew the Partners in Health um, concept and, and operationalized it. In 1993, you took a your pivot. Um, up to that point, you were delivering healthcare services, but in 1993, you chose to um, develop the Institute um, for Health and Social Justice with the award that you received from the MacArthur uh, Genius Award, and that is an expansion of the scope in a remarkable way, where you have now added this very large additional agenda of um, research um, to the Partners in Health mission, which was you know, quite saturated with providing health delivery in a resource poor setting, undergoing still um, local challenges. 
Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that decision, the, st the strategy, the thoughts that went in, and some of the early implementation of this research yeah. arm to a health care delivery uh, program? Well, I'm so glad you, you brought that up because it allows me to say that that was a pivot, but a pivot back towards our mission. Because we had gotten some things right when we were students. Because um, some, not all of us were students, but Jim, this is 1987, we were in medical school and graduate school. Ophelia Dahl was probably in, you know, at Wellesley, a college mm -hmm. student. So the original mission of Partners in Health was to serve the poor, you know, and particularly focus on their needs, which again, I've told you, they're only too happy to say in my experience, first mm -hmm. in Haiti, then across you know, Latin America and some places in Africa. But second, to link that service to formal training program, what you call just a minute ago capacity building, mm -hmm. and third, to generate new knowledge. So we actually got the mission right, and that's why um, some of us pursued um, you know, graduate school, a PhD as well. I'm sure it's why you pursued a PhD. And uh, I see that you did not read my 1,000-page doctoral thesis. No, I did not Which do calls that as part for of my linking. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's really, actually, any thesis that's a thousand pages long, you can bet is bad. And after I graduated, they passed the 500 page rule at Harvard. <laughs> and I think that's a true story. Um, now that it's going out into the world, you know, I'm sure Some I'll find checker. out if it's not. Um, but, but so it was a pivot back to the mission. Because mm. I think, and this, this is a, a leadership warning as well. I think when you are practitioners, and many of you will, and by the way, practitioner doesn't necessarily mean a nurse or a doctor. Right. Right? There are many kinds of field work that you can do. And that's true of research. I'm sure, you know, in epidemiology, you know, you have people who feel like they're in the field, right, or consumed yes. by, you know, I, I'm, I know because we've, con we've done research in the middle of epidemics, right? and are trying to do that now with Ebola to figure out, generate knowledge. But in, when you're under that kind of pressure, what are the first things to go out the door? Generating new knowledge, you know, whether you call it research or not. I, I don't really care what you call it as much as I do that we got to learn, we've got to learn from delivery. And, uh, and training, training people formally. So the pivot was really back towards the original mission and it's a very tough mission. If you're going to say we're going to leverage all of our service delivery with formal credentialing training programs for you know, people who want to be our colleagues. You, know, you don't think there are people in Haiti and Rwanda and Malawi and Lesotho who want to do graduate work, who want to be credentialed, who want to be a nurse or a doctor or a professor. They do. Yeah. And same for community health workers. So that was the pivot, really. And it's been very tough. That was 20 years ago, as mm -hmm. you pointed out. And it's always tough to get you know, us all to remember that the mission is really comes out of the union of those three endeavors. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Thank you. I want just one additional question along this line, and it fast forward to 2010, and it's post-earthquake. And um, you and your colleagues and your partners decide to build a 250,000 square foot um, hospital in an environment that's been devastated. And that's another bold um, decision. And in my doing my homework, I understood that you had to really stand that up 
best yeah. decision. And you used the term, imagine the unmanageable. And I think that's another yeah. essence of leadership that I'd like you to share with the audience, what that experience was like making this bold move at a time of such crisis. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I, again, I appreciate getting a chance to talk about it, especially when we're thinking about leadership. Because this gives me a chance to say that sticking with equity and justice is, is never going to let you down in terms of leadership. It may be painful, it may be dangerous, it may be mocked, it may be disdained, it may be doubted, it may, but it will eventually prove to be the right leadership challenge. You know, the great leaders, if we look back, they, they often are people who said, we really can't, you know, we cannot allow this kind of um, disparity, injustice, inequality. And so to go looking back, whether at 2010 after the earthquake or saying something like, you know, if you are going between the Brigham and Women's Hospital here and a small hospital in rural Haiti and you're, as I did as a intern, resident, fellow in infectious disease and faculty member, you're going to see people with the same diseases, right? right? AIDS, for example. And imagine now looking back, you know, people say, well, that was really great leadership when you push forward, you know, treating AIDS in Haiti. But part of me wants to say, yeah, that's really amazing, you know. <laughs> of course, these are not different species, poor and rich, black and white. You know, so, you know, it's the same thing with that hospital. I mean, the real question is how could it have been regarded as overly ambitious, you know, and go right through the list, that was the complimentary part. To <laughs> rebuild, to build a teaching hospital, a modern hospital, in a country, our oldest neighbor, in which all of the hospitals had just been destroyed. Right. That, that's the amazing thing to me, in, you know, and it's the same around AIDS, or maybe we should have a plan to do something about driving down case fatality rates for Ebola, since again, it's not. It's a delivery problem, right. not a problem of a different, path, you know, pathophysiology right. for Liberians and us. And so, to stand that up, as you said, it was very difficult. Um, we had great partners, great implementers, great colleagues. We had a, for the first time, support from um, people who actually did know how to build hospitals. We had built the hospitals we built with little in the way of professional health. So we had great partners. Mm -hmm. right? But you asked about the leadership, making the decision. It was much more painful than it should have been because it should have been obvious that after all these hospitals were destroyed. And people died of trauma, by the way. Right. After, after the Boston Marathon bombings, there's a reason that no one who reached a hospital here died. And there's a reason why so many people died. That's right. You know, in public health, you often, you often hear people focus on the least common denominator. That's not a good way for public health to be. Um, we should focus on equity and high aspirations and, and drag each other up. Now that's again a longer answer than that, that, you That's wonderful. Wanted, no, it's wonderful. I appreciate it. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to comment a little bit about your strategies for uh, tackling health inequalities in the United States sure. where resources are not as constrained as in some of the other places that you are known to work and have remarkable successes. Well, you know, the strategies, it's, it's funny, there, there's, in a way, it, it does lead me back to 
the generic strategy, which is also a leadership strategy, I believe, which is focus on equity, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's an interesting, you know, you, you, those of you in public health, you know, I, I think those of us in public health, we can le learn from errors made in the past, right? Pitting, for example, prevention against care, right? So say you're interested in, I'm not gonna start where you think I'm gonna start, I'm not gonna start with AIDS, well, I'll just choose something else, like uh, low birth weight babies, right? Do you want to prevent low birth weight babies? Meaning not prevent them as being, but prevent them <laughs> from being low birth weight. <laughs> then knock yourselves out, right? But some babies are going to need NICUs, right. right? That's right. So to pit better prenatal care against NICU care, this is just pure lunacy, right? right? Same thing, you know, say, well, we should be focusing more on HIV prevention. Yeah, we should be focusing more on it. but. That's not, you don't need to say then on treating people with AIDS when it is the larging, largest infectious killer of young adults in the world. It's kind of like saying, we don't need a teaching hospital, we don't need a modern hospital, we need an fill in the blank, when in fact they don't have any hot modern hospitals because it's been destroyed. So, you know, going to the United States, there's a couple of things. One I learned from the Haitians, and that is I'm not a very good nationalist. You know, um, they have a lot of reason yeah. to be nationalists. Sure. You know, they've been under siege for a long time. I, but I do, I was born here and I do love this place just as much as I love anywhere else. Um, and there are some serious health disparity problems. And yes. looking at them, they all have ways to prevent, to palliate, and I think, you know, to improve or, mm -hmm. or you know, address even late in the game. And. Um, our strategy is sometimes to take lessons learned in Haiti or Rwanda and apply them here. Um, for example, what is our weakest infrastructure problem in the United States as compared to uh, Rwanda? And it's, it's not hospitals. Ours are pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's actually community health workers. We don't have them. Yeah. And if we have them, they're not properly supported, supported or trained. trained. And um, so that's a that's a powerful, they could yeah. be our allies in yeah. addressing health disparities. Um, you know, and we, 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 again, we need to look at the causes of the causes, right? But we also need to understand people do get sick. Um, and um, meaning, it'd be great if we could prevent um, all the pathologies that we do see in a, in a hospital or a clinic here. But when people are sick, we also have to pay attention to their suffering. And even there, I think we're, we're, we're in trouble in this country. And we can you know, address that, those disparities of access to care much more aggressively mm -hmm. and never pit them against prevention. Right. Okay. We should pit you know, military spending yeah. against prevention or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I, I, I think earlier in your statement, you- Or, or corporate you welfare. Or corporate welfare. But you also, we shouldn't pit the different levels of prevention against each other. So there's primary prevention. And secondary prevention. And secondary yeah. and even tertiary. And, and that would be the reason for advocating for a comprehensive That's approach right. to and health. Which, in my view, by the way, just to contradict myself, I like <coughs> military spending when they're helping us with Ebola. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, a comprehensive prevention. You can respect the social and economic rights right. of people living in poverty or marginalized right. by racism, gender disparities, et cetera, that we know make people more vulnerable. I mean, read Brian Stevenson's beautiful new book, Just Mercy, oh, about the criminal list. justice uh, system in the United States. Yes. And you can think about primary, yeah. secondary, 
tertiary prevention there as well. Beautiful book. Yeah. And a board member of Partners in Health, if I can brag. Um, but, you know, I think if we refuse to do that, and you refuse to do that, you know, you're the future leaders of uh, public health and scholarship nationally, internationally. Yeah. You say, you know, we're not so, we're, we're skeptical about preventing. I'm looking at you, Amelia, because you, you take tuberculosis, right? Do we need better diagnostics? Yeah. Yes. We do. Especially right? for pediatric populations. We don't even, we're missing, you know, sometimes a half of them. Mm -hmm. Do we need better uh, therapeutics? Yes, we do. You know, we need better prevention, and there's primary prevention too, better housing conditions, that's better right. job, social safety net that's going to protect workers who are, are, and immigrants particularly, right? So that primary prevention can go all the way to, we also need, you know, somebody has massive hemoptysis coughing up blood, I need better thoracic surgery, you know, but this comprehensive, you know, seamless garment approach is, is very sound in, in uh, public health and medicine. Great, completely. I think this is time to invite the audience and including those in the spillover room, can they communicate uh, questions to us to engage Dr. Farmer in, in this discussion? I miss you, spillover room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Over here. Please introduce yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Fiona Lander. I'm in the MPH program. Thanks, Paul, for the wonderful presentation. I uh, just wanted to ask, I mean, in this line of work, you see a lot of confronting things. Um, how do you maintain the outrage without burning out? Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that we can do is say, well, you know, that's outrageous, right? And, you know, I'll just, you've already heard me say this in, in our class, but, you know, I think it's outrageous that we have differential valuation of human life so that it would not be a national, international crisis to reduce case fatality rates for Liberians and Sierra Leoneans and Ghanaians with, uh, with Ebola, for example, just as it was. So saying something's about outrage and then working with others to do something about it is one way to avoid burning out, right? It's a, it's a, the, the, the beauty of practice, you know, um, is, and I'm not talking about clinical practice necessarily, I'm just saying doing something, activism, being with others, thinking how are we gonna, how are we gonna make this better? I, I think there's not a, there's much less burnout than risk of burnout then, I mean, I couldn't be a banker without burning out. I mean, I'd like to have some help from bankers, mind <laughs> you. So I, I think this is a low risk, you know, it's tough work, there's no question, but the vitality of practice is a beautiful thing. And, and again, you don't have to be trained in, the, in, in a particular field. Like, if, if, I, if I'm a, you know, a physical chemist, thank God I'm not, um, too difficult. It doesn't mean I can't be an activist at, you know, right. a, a church group or um, in a soup kitchen. You know, on and on it may go, right? Or, uh, and so I think that that's actually insurance against burnout, the kind of work we do. At least I feel that way. This is 30-something years, and I'm more excited about this work than I ever have been. So, thank you. Plus, you guys are my retirement plan. <laughs> Back there and then up front here. 
Here is a question from our online audience, asked by the tutor user Rips22. And his question is, how many hours does Paul Farmer sleep? What does he do for fun to balance his life, his family? First one, none of your business. No, I'm <laughs> um, he might be a sleep medicine. Oh, in that case, you know, I'm, 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 one of, I'm lucky. I'm one of those people who can, can get, get by on a, uh, not a lot of sleep. But, you know, eventually it takes its toll. That's just physical, and then you, yeah. need, you need a break. And by the way, the more you're working with other people, oh. the more you're spelled, you know, and, and somebody else is there right. to look out for you and, and take care of you. And, uh, you know, I think cultivating things that you, you like to do to step out of some of these grim situations, though invigorating, right, um, is, a, is a very smart thing. You know, and I, I mean, and, and some hobbies are better than others. For example, I don't think it'll do much for my career or standing here if I say that part of mine includes bad action movies. <laughs> But, um, you know, everybody should have, you know, uh, escapes like that. And it's great if it can be something. I actually, you know, I like to, you know, I like to read fiction. I like to step out of my world and go into another one. And, uh, you know, and, and, and cultivating things that are beautiful. Um, I'm looking at you as if you asked the question, but <laughs> since the questioner isn't here. So I think that's, it doesn't matter what my, my hobbies or habits are, but you know, um, cultivating those things with you know with your family if you're lucky, uh, are part of I think staying engaged in the work. And you know the other thing I would add is that um, families, this is a family affair, right? Global health equity, health disparities in you know addressing our world's disparities. If 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 you know we need everybody involved. The kids, the cats, the dogs, the grandmas. So. I think there's a question over here in the front. And then. Hi, thank you again for being here. My name is Kristen Gilmer, and I'm a doctoral student in the DRPH program. And as infectious diseases are kind of the, the global spotlight in regard to the developing world, what do you see as the biggest challenge regarding the fact that non-communicable diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease are increasing? Do you think that the challenge is in the intersection and in prevention? Mm. Well, just to be something of a devil's advocate, I will say one of the biggest challenges is pitting pathologies one against the other, right, in activism. Yeah. So you really, I mean, it's kind of startling. Um, I just saw a friend of mine who will go unmentioned, but he's an eminent public health figure associated with this school, <laughs> recently returned return from service to the United States of America <laughs> and teaching in a certain program, which I won't mention, but you're in it. <laughs> so, you know, he was describing to me the, you know, the competition between people who were advocates to diminish hepatitis B and hepatitis C. <laughs> now, I would have laughed aghast, <clears throat> except that I've already seen all this, right? Yeah. So that's one of the biggest problems, is we're not fighting, you know, with people who are fighting NCDs, we're fighting NCDs. Or we're not fighting, you know, yeah. pitting tuberculosis against HIV. They already work well together. They play nice together to kill us, right? 
So that's a big problem is this, we're all socialized for scarcity. We're, we think we're competing for the same resources, you know, and that, that's a pathology that is embarrassing. That's why I'm putting at the top of the list, that we have to be very rigorous. The goal is better health and less suffering, and particularly for people who are living in poverty or marginalized by those. They're the people we were supposed to be serving in public health, right? The, the marginalized. So that that's the goal, then we follow the burden of disease and gaps, right? And that will always lead us, you know, in the right direction. For example, if there was no Ebola in Liberia, we wouldn't be worrying about, you know, we'd worry about preventing it or surveillance, all the things. But, um, and, you know, but it is a, a major problem. And if there wasn't, you know, if there was no HIV in parts of Ethiopia served by PEPFAR, which is, you know, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, it's perfectly reasonable that they say, well, what are the, what is the burden of disease here? And what are the gaps? And uh, I think that and fighting for more investments in healthcare delivery, of course, of good healthcare, and in training and in generating new knowledge, that should be our goal and avoid the sort of, um, I was going to say cat fighting. It seems like a little bit too harsh, but I've seen it a lot in, in as, a, as, a, as someone you know, work, working in this field. You, your generation should really stomp it out. And also, that's part of the leadership to say, yeah. no, 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 we're not pitting non-communicable against communicable diseases. We're saying, we don't want people to die untimely of any of these pathologies, and we're going to study them to figure out what the burden of disease is and what's missing from other interventions, and then push for those. And opportunities for synergy. So if you are working on a PEPFAR project, how can we improve infant mortality and maternal health as part of the spillover of and, you know, enhancing one, capacity for healthcare delivery? I'm glad you, you jogged my memory, because clearly we've learned a lot of things, right? PEPFAR and, and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, uh, you know, and I think this is um, you, the leadership that's been involved in this program already. But those are the first large funding efforts ever in human history yes. for people living in poverty. Unless you look at colonial medicine, right, where you're saying, well, those are, that's for the colony. And often that was for the white people in the colony, not for the you know, natives of whatever part of France or Latin America we're talking about, or Asia for that matter. So this is uh, entirely unprecedented, and we, we better have learned things, right? And one of them is that community health workers are key for chronic non-communicable disease, right? Mm -hmm. If someone has serious chronic illness, you know, for which there isn't a ready prevention vaccine or, um, or other forms of primary prevention, mm -hmm. then uh, we better, a major mental illness is an example. Yes. Do we, have we learned nothing about treating epilepsy, about major mental illness? about serious complications of coronary artery disease? And, uh, and the answer is, yeah, we have learned a lot about it. We don't have a good strategy without community health workers. And we should be <coughs> training, supporting, and working with them very closely. That's one, one synergy, back to Michelle's point. It's a great question. It is great. Question over here. Hi, my name is Luisa. I'm a medical student from Brazil. And I was wondering, I first heard about you as the man who would cure the world. My sister gave me the book <laughs> before I got into med school. And I was wondering as, well, I live in a very poor country, not as much as Haiti, but 
how do you keep it from being how do you incorporate the local costumes and the the local I'm afraid it's something that I look at very skeptically sometimes it's kind of like a colonization thing and we see this in Brazil because most of the medical students are rich or are white mm -hmm. and our patients are poor and black mm -hmm. and I was wondering how do you deal with that without being it in, in your practice without being something top bottom or something that well that would cure the world without yeah. the other well part. it's very interesting I mean, it's a great question first of all and uh, second of all is again I have a deep debt of gratitude to the Haitians because um, in my experience there remember I was 23 when I started working there I still work there I just went from Liberia to Haiti you know which is not there are no direct flights um, <laughs> but you know I've never had anyone Haitian asked me to look a different way, I mean, wear something else. You did say costumes. Do you mean customs? Customs, no, I, I mean think you meant customs. customs. Okay, yeah. but, but it's still, you know, uh, you remember what I did my PhD in, anthropology, so yeah. those yeah. overlap, I guess, <laughs> categories for us. And, um, you know, if we, if we were to say, well, if I would, was to have said as a, you know, a med student or a, uh, a res resident, but you're a med student, you know, I want to integrate Haitian custom into our medical practice, I hope someone would have said to me, oh yeah, what custom are you talking about? Because it matters, right? Some of them are, I mean, they haven't been shown to be effective. Let's say, I mentioned the three people that who were personal friends of mine when I was in my 20s who died, one of childbirth, one of uh, cerebral malaria, and the third of, of typhoid. And each one of them went through a hell before dying of basically a lack of access to modern medical care. Sometimes that involved local customs, but really what it was was determined by the political economy of Haiti. Grotesque poverty, no healthcare infrastructure to speak of. Um, and again, you could have said, well, you know, they, it could have been prevented. Um, and by then, I, by the time this happened, I had already had a few experiences of my own as a, as a patient. For example, I was hit by a car when I was your age, a medical student, in Cambridge. And if, if the ambulance attendants would have come over and said, should have looked both ways before you crossed, <laughs> I would have been quite cross. Mm -hmm. And I hope my friends and family would have. They didn't say, well, we should, should have put prevention uh, over care. They said, we're going to take you to you know the Mount Auburn Hospital, which was good. They did not ask me about my cultural background. They did not, you know, they were not interested in what you know what I might bring. They took me to the operating room, and uh, now that's an extreme example. But each of the three that I mentioned, there is not a different way to treat typhoid in Haiti compared to Massachusetts, or to treat cerebral malaria of someone who's a coma, or to prevent death in childbirth or its infectious sequelae. And so I think in my field, especially if you're studying anthropology and medicine, you're always at risk, I believe, of romanticizing cultural difference when what you're really seeing is structural violence. That's what you described. We're white, they're brown. You just said it, you know. That's inequality. That's not ancient Brazilian secrets, you know. <laughs> And I think we got to be really hard-headed in public health about this. Mm -hmm. 
is like structural violence, yeah. whatever you call it, inequality, health disparities, injustice, racism, all the things that it is, let's all fight never to conflate that with cultural difference. Because that is a very convenient thing for medical students and, and other helpers to do, is to say, oh, aren't these customs interesting and exotic, right? right. And uh, that's going on with Ebola, too. Not that I feel passionately about it. <laughs> two more questions? We have time for two more. A question back there and one more. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm in the Environmental Health Master's program here. And I've been very taken in your work with uh, your use of the Haitian word for to, to be present and to be together. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you bring spirituality into your practice. Well, yeah, could you be talking about accompaniment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's true, I did get that. Um, you know, if someone had said to me when I was 22 and leaving college, and, you know, what's accompaniment? I said, well, isn't that something that a pianist would do? Or, <laughs> you know, I'd never heard the term used like that. Um, and, and I'm so glad I didn't. It was early on in my experience in Haiti, you know, when the community health worker said, you know, what we do is we accompany others. And accompaniateur is the word that I kind of picked from them and at the same time I was reading it in guess where liberation theology uh, you know and I think that was very good for me because it was very as I said it was a painful experience not that it's not still painful I mean it's painful to see difficult and unjust things unjust things right but those were two different and complementary sources for me um, the Haitian um, the depth and the passion that I saw among the community health workers, and I'm not trying to romanticize, you know, my colleagues from the 80s, many of them still my colleagues, but I'm just saying there was a passion there. There's a lot going on in Haiti, admittedly, at that time in the 80s. Um, and then on the other side, the uh, more um, reflective spiritual, um, sp spiritualism, you know, spirituality, spiritualities of the uh, theologians I was, I was reading. And I think they've informed our work for whether in a secular sense or for those who are seeking some kind of solace or direction um, and that you don't often get in public health. One more question over here. Hi, my name is Zara. I'm a first year master's student in the Global Health Department. Um, I was wondering, uh, I guess what we sort of get hit with a lot um, here at school is how how public health is sort of the intersection of all these different sectors, all these different players. Um, and I was wondering as, I guess, a public health leader um, in sort of the backdrop of big pharma trying to negotiate access for third world, third world um, sort of, you know, medicines um, and how government intervention should or should not be a thing. Um, how do you sort of negotiate access to that from a public health standpoint where, you know, primarily the demand is, I mean, or the demand supply is market-driven, it's sort of out of your control. So how do you sort of negotiate that from, you know, two, three degrees of separation in terms of equity and, and sort of the, the bigger problem here? It's a great question. I mean, I, I, I doubt I can answer it well or concisely, but I'll give it a try. I certainly feel passionately about that, too. In the newspaper, the New York Times today, um, the um, director general of the World Health Organization um, is criticizing what you call big pharma for delays in the Ebola vaccine. And um, 
and you know, I'm, I'm sure that you know when I go through every line of it, I'll say, okay, I agree with that, and I agree with that. But the what you ask, how I would do it, right? And or we would do it, and you know, what we would say is, okay, who can make the things we want, whether they be diagnostics, or therapeutics, or vaccines, preventives, right? And in the case of Ebola, since it's on my mind, that's clearly going to be big pharma. And, uh, and also, you mentioned the state or public intervention. What's the, and that's what NIH is, too. You know, regulatory capacity is also a public function. You know? It's not that investment in the product shouldn't be a public function. I'm not saying that. That's great. You know, we need you know, those, kind of, those kind of investments, because market failures clearly are going to occur always in healthcare and education. As, as Amartya Sen reminded us you know, yesterday, Adam Smith said that, right? One of the, the champions of the market said, yeah, but it won't work with healthcare and education. Did he not say that? So I agree that we cannot fail to have public and global interventions to promote um, uh, public goods, like a vaccine. And an Ebola vaccine is a good example. So I, I would say we're, we're going to reach out to companies and say, hey, can we be part of this? Now, we would also like to be protected, right? Healthcare workers. We want to be protected from Ebola, too. I'd sign up in a minute for an Ebola vaccine um, trial. I'd, do, I'd certainly sign up for a vaccine, but I'd, I'd sign up for the trial. So, and also, what else can we offer? Well, if we have a community-based platform for delivering services, why can't that be a community-based platform for conducting research, right? especially with health? With help, so I'm, I'm, I think that's a really important thing. Not that the WHO is, isn't saying they would do it, but I'm saying they, they need implementers. And uh, the, I'm not just talking about doctors and nurses. I'm talking about this team, this army of healthcare workers, who would be the first beneficiaries probably, but also the effector arm to reach the millions of people who would need that or some other vaccine. And uh, so I'm, I'm very. Uh, interested in, in, in that kind of direct work. Did I answer the question? Market failure for sure. <laughs> Healthcare, education, public good. You know, yes, we, we need to. Multi sectorial approach. Multi sectorial. Complex health problem. So great response. We have some more time, and I understand we have a question from one, our remote, one of our remote viewers. Hi, Overflow Room, again. <laughs> Here is another question from our, our online audience so that they can also be part of the conversation. It's a question asked by Twitter user Meng Yao. And the question is, I want to ask, except for activism, what characteristics of leadership should we pick up as a student in the medical world? I think humility would be up there. I mean, humility and listening are the first things to fall out of my mouth. And it's not because I'm naturally inclined to humility or listening. <laughs> it's that leadership demands it, right? And there's time for, you know, in medicine, like in other fields, and certainly in public health, there's time for, um, you know, I'm not listening so much right now, I'm talking. But I think that humility is a, uh, we need more of it, and especially in, in activism and academics. Um, uh, you know, another thing, part about leadership, as I said, is uh, 
you never go wrong when you're, you have a health and social justice uh, you know, agenda. It's not that that's the only agenda. It, I mean, you could say the agenda is you know, developing some new tool. Those are great agendas, for, you know, new vaccine, um, leadership in a corporate sector or an academic department. There's so many things, ways to do it. I mean, I'm interested in scholarly work as well. But, you know, global health equity is the right term for what we're doing. It's probably better than any, I mean, it's hard to find a, a better term. And that is a health and social justice endeavor. So physicians, he's a medical student or she's a medical student. And those are the three things I would put up there on the list. I'm going to ask a question, just be, we have a few more minutes and I'll come back to you. I, I, in 2009, you were one of the editors on a book, Global Health in the Time of Violence. And we haven't brought up the issue of violence. You mentioned structural violence in, in, earlier in this conversation. But what are the opportunities for medical students and students in schools of public health to play a leadership role in really bringing um, to the forefront the, the real important role violence um, is playing in the burden of disease and our capacity to actually yeah. mitigate um, problems such as getting vaccines to populations that yeah. need it because of structural violence. You know, that, that, that is exactly <coughs> the leap I would make that you just made at the end. There's so many different kinds of violence, violence against women, violence of war, you know, chronic low-grade violence like what's going on in you know, Mexico, for example. Um, and that's, you know, uh, the drug trade, right? So in each of, regardless of the kind of violence that you're talking about, and it's important to make distinctions about different kinds of acute event, event violence, right? But regardless of what they are, they're all pretty related to structural violence. And, you know, even though we do, you know, we don't have a prescription you know, if we have a prescription, say, for, uh, you know, active pulmonary tuberculosis, it's hard to know what the prescription mm -hmm. is for violence. But one thing it, that if, if violence, this kind of violence, acute event, event violence, is related to the structural violence, what are we doing to link our interventions and violence reduction to fighting for equity again, mm -hmm. to making sure people do have access to the kind of things that we would like to do, school, safety, you know, freedom from want, right. um, and that involves medical care. So I think there's a lot to be said for creating jobs and doing good health care, you know, and whether that be prevention or, I should say, and um, health care delivery. I think that's a violence prevention effort and a diplomatic tool as well. Indeed, the only kind of uh, violence prevention I would know how to do is address these basic social and economic rights, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to housing, and why not get all crazy and say it would be great if people had jobs. <laughs> you know, I've got yeah. one. I, I know they want one. Thank you. We have a question back here. Hi, my name is Martha Vega. I'm a med school graduate and research associate for the program of Global Surgery and Social Change. Um, based on your background on botanics, hello? Okay. I'm just wondering uh, do you see any place in this whole world of uh, public health where plant based pharmaceuticals could be implemented? 
do you see any future of that? You know, I, I'm, uh, you say ba based on my background in botanicals, I was thinking, wow. From the very beginning. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I wish I knew more about that. It is true that I, it, you know, it's a hobby. Um, uh, but I, I, I would assume the answer to that question is yes. You know, I just don't know uh, enough about it. I mean, I, of course, in infectious disease, I'm going back to, as I'm sure you can, to a number of the therapeutic advances that have already been made by plant-based therapeutics. That's been enormous from aspirin to malaria care to say nothing of modern malaria care. So um, I'm just assuming the answer is yes. You know, how best to do that, um, again, would require the kind of uh, cooperation I was mentioning around vaccines, right, is I don't know how to take, go from, you know, some insight from the Ho Chi Minh Trail to make, you know, coartum, but uh, a pharmaceutical company would. And, uh, and, you know, finding out how to make that, uh, you know, in the service of poor people is, is, is a tricky and important thing to do. We have about two minutes left, I understand, and I wanted to just ask you to um, you know, share um, the top three or four things that uh, this cohort of viewers uh, might want to take away uh, from this discussion around leadership in the face of challenging global public health issues. Well, well thank you, Michelle, and thank you for doing this. I mean, one of the first ones is that you know, leadership is, is going to involve, again, creating a stage for other people to lead. And you immediately said capacity building. I think there's, you know, I look at my colleagues from Haiti who are, I mean, the leader, the leader of the Partners in Health in Liberia is a former Haitian student of mine who's been involved in healthcare delivery uh, for 10 years and he's still young, but I mean, I, I work with people who believe that we should be creating, you know, ways for other people to lead. Another is um, you don't, you just don't go wrong when you're focused on health and social justice. Verkow um, yeah. or John Snow, you know, read read the books, read the bios, I and mean, they're actually quite the the leaders of of public health in the 19th century were were much more focused on. Uh, health equity and on social justice than the leaders of public health in the late 20th century when all the rage was how much does it cost and how effectiveness is it and let's have a formula. It's, it'd be great to know the formula of cost and effectiveness but it's not that easy so humility, the third point, is one that I would elevate is we need to be more humble about you know, getting ready to decide this is what a health policy should be based on what's affordable and what it costs, and more committed to going back to that um, social justice promote, uh, approach, saying this is what people need to be healthy and have agency and to live lives with less suffering. Thank you so much. Thank I you, really Michelle. appreciate you sharing um, the time with us for this session and this discussion. And I want to also thank you, um, those of you here in the studio and those in the overflow room and even in more remote sites. I would also want to remind you that our next Voices in Leadership seminar discussion series will be happening on November 13th, where Dr. Mark Smith, who's a former president and CEO of uh, Healthcare Foundation, will be, um, will be here 
for discussing with us. So thank you very much. And again, please join me in thanking Dr. Farmer. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.